This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. If you're a longtime listener of Marketing Trends, you know that we have always been big fans of Lego and its marketing journey. So we were thrilled to welcome to the show Michael Moynihan, the Vice President of Marketing at Lego. We picked his brain about how Lego was able to take its marketing strategy to a whole new stratosphere thanks to things like digital experiences and entertainment properties. But the success did not come overnight. It was a long trip to that stratosphere, and Michael was there for it all. So he had a lot of wisdom to share. Enjoy this episode. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have, on the other line, Michael, what's going on? Not much, how are you? We are super excited for this. Lego is one of the brands that we talk about all the time on the show. Uh, so it is really cool to be able to have you here on the, on the call here. Um, and we're going to get into all that, but first we're going to get into your background. How did you get into marketing? Uh, yeah, good question. So, um, my first job out of college was in, uh, management consulting and I, I, uh, took the, the, the standard path of going in to get my MBA. And that's really when I, uh, started to spark to marketing. There were a few courses that I took in marketing that were really interesting to the point where, uh, I ended up, um, taking a job from there, uh, with General Mills out in Minneapolis, uh, doing consumer products marketing. And so that, um, what I really discovered there is that, uh, marketing was in fact, um, something that was very much in my, my sweet spot. I, I think there are a couple of things in particular that I really enjoyed about it. One is it gives you a chance to, to stretch all sides of your brain, you know, so, you know, it's, it's super analytical at times. It's also super creative at times. Uh, so that, that kind of variety I really enjoyed. Um, but then the other part of it that I really grew to love is, is just the overall consumer psychology around things and, you know, the deep understanding that's required. Um, I just found that super fascinating and the chance to, to geek out on that was, uh, was quite appealing. So. so flash forward to today, you've been with Lego for 20 plus years. Lego is a brand that, and a company that's been around, um, you know, since the 1930s. Uh, what's the scope of your role as a marketing leader in Lego? Yeah, so I lead several functions within our global marketing area. Prior to this role, I was heading up marketing in the U.S., so I I have a fair amount of experience. In fact, the majority of my experience at Lego is more within a a local market context. Uh, Moving into the global side of things, um, I'm overseeing several different areas, uh, really all geared around our marketing backbone. Uh, So it's, um, for example... Uh, brand development, so all of the global brand work that we do, both uh, brand campaigns and brand governance. Um, it's a lot around uh, media planning, and um, you know we have a global media agency, and so there's a lot of global media strategy work that gets done uh, with that group. All of our consumer and shopper insight work is done uh, in my group. Uh, marketing analytics, uh, marketing capability building uh, is there. Um, strategic partnerships, how we work with you know, a lot of the major media tech and entertainment companies, um, that discipline is also in my group. So yeah, it's, it's several different areas, uh, really geared around, um, you know, our overall approach to marketing and, and how we can, um, scale capabilities and best practices and, and have the right infrastructure. Over the past few years, obviously there has been a, you know, massive move to digital. There has been so much emphasis on creating, 
uh, you know, digital properties, um, you know, digital media, all this sort of stuff. And Lego inherently has a physical IRL product, a product that, um, you know, kids use and love every single day. My, uh, my, my nephew put together, we put together over the holidays, uh, the, uh, empire state building. And we did, uh, some, some, uh, Harry Potter, uh, some Harry Potter castle stuff. So even this, you know, it's, it's something that's just so entrenched. I think a lot of our childhoods, um, but yet you've managed to build just in a really short time, a massive digital footprint, um, including the movies and, and a website. Like, how did you approach taking this kind of physical product and creating a digital kind of world around it? It was a pretty interesting story because back uh, close to 20 years ago now, we had a bit of a near-death experience um, in which, you know, at that time, um, platform video games were really coming on strong. And there was a bit of a narrative going around, um, particularly among our retail partners, um, mentioning exactly what you just did, which is, you know, you guys are an analog experience in a, in a digital age, you know, you're, you're kind of toast, basically. And it was also coinciding with the time where our business had stalled a little bit. What we um, later learned was the reason for the stall was not because of platform video gaming. Kids were doing that in conjunction with Lego building with no problem. Platform gaming was not cannibalizing. The reality was that the products that we were launching were just not all that inspiring to kids. So we got a little bit lazy in our in our innovation efforts there. Um, but I, we we believed this narrative that back in the day, um, the overall relevance of Lego building um, as an analog experience was um, was potentially at, at risk. And so we end up going into you know diversifying in many different categories as a way of of hedging our bets. And that turned out to be um, a, a really bad decision because and it was really grounded on on a poor base of insights where we just sort of took this narrative at face value that you know there's this inherent trade-off between the analog building experience and digital experiences when in fact um you know after uh, a few years of a really tough performance and, and realizing that we we had stretched ourselves too thin it forced us to 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 think much more logically and do a lot of insight work and what we realized is that you know the the digital platforms can actually be um, accelerants to driving more interest in, in, in Lego. And so we ended up, uh, rather than seeing video games as a threat, we ultimately came to realize that they can be, you know, a huge opportunity for us. And we ended up, um, through some of our partners, uh, building um, one of the more successful video game franchises um, in, in history. And we did this not to just simply, you know, capture licensing volume from video games, because the world had plenty of video games. What we wanted to do there is think about how do we create video game experiences that can inspire offline building. So that was the brief to the designers, and they delivered on that beautifully. And um, so based on that experience, we then also thought, okay, what are some other experiences that we could launch that that could actually also inspire kids to build? And, um, you know, that's where we ultimately started to, to dabble in entertainment content as well. You know, there was something about the minifigure in, in animated form, gaming or you know, certainly short form com content at the time, um, it seems to really resonate with, uh, with folks. And so that led to, you know, a lot of what you just mentioned around theatrical movies and television shows and, and even a lot of short form content delivered digitally. Um, we then also, uh, you know, used the, the web and, and, you know, everything that that uh, empowers us to do in terms of creating more direct connections with our consumers. Um, 
we started to do a lot of co-creation with our consumers. And so we have a whole product line now called Lego Ideas where, you know, people can actually submit ideas for Lego products and you know people vote on them and once you surpass 10,000 votes on a concept then we will actually look into commercializing it and so um, so it's all these things where we, we started with the core idea of the importance of building and a lot of the research continues to just confirm that people absolutely love to build with Lego and a lot of these digital platforms rather than being threats turned into being real enablers to driving more and more interest. Yeah I mean I um I totally agree. And it seems so obvious now <laughs> um, to look at it all. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, people would like that. But I'm sure, you know, at the time, you know, back back a number of years ago, if you're like, hey, you know, people like uh, people like Ian are going to be buying the, uh, you know, Yoda Lego plush toy for their, you know, one and a half year old niece, which I did for, for Christmas this year, um, that it would be you know, kind of a, a far cry. I mean, you're talking about like massive, um, massive, you know, other media enterprises like Star Wars and things like that. Um, but even taking a step back to like doing a, a theatrical release of Lego movie, it was a massive investment. I'm curious, like, how did, how were you involved in that? How did you, you know, talk to leadership about making a massive investment? We talk about it pretty often here on the show is potentially like, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, like content marketing, uh, you know, campaign of all time in terms of like overall brand lift and sales and all stuff like that. Uh, and something that actually did make money um, and made a franchise that continues to be really successful. So I'm just curious what went into that. Yeah. So um, it was interesting because it took us several years to be convinced that we should play in the theatrical space, believe it or not. There, there were several folks you know, in, in Hollywood who had different concepts that they were throwing at us. And I think um, what, what we were really focused on is the fact that um, we are a, a building company and a, and a company that's really geared around play. We've made a conscious choice to not become an entertainment company. And um, so for that reason, if you look at it strategically, this was not something that was on our long-term plans where we said, we have to launch a theatrical movie. What we said is um, consistent with what I mentioned, the whole reason that we exist is to get kids to build. And so if theatrical movies can help us to do that, then that's cool and and we'll, we'll embark on that. But the last thing that we wanted to do is just launch a movie because to be honest with you, there was, there was some criticism um, out in the markets that you know a lot of these toy-based movies were 90-minute commercials and things like that. And we, we didn't want to be adding fuel to that fire. We, 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 we really genuinely wanted to make a really, really strong experience. And so when, when we were being approached on this, the, the main objective that we had said is, first and foremost, we want a great story. Secondly, we want a story that really celebrates our brand and its values and brings that to life in a really cool way. Let's not worry out of the gates about developing products per se, because we're, we're Lego. So we can create products around anything um, that the most important thing is really having the right story in a way that celebrates our brand uh, in, in the right way. And um, so I, I give a ton of credit to our, our colleagues at, at Warner Brothers and, and Dan Lin uh, and others in the production area who did a phenomenal job of coming up with an awesome story that really celebrated the brand values um, in a great way. But I think that that strategic choice around the fact that we are not an entertainment company, I think actually helped this in the sense that we don't have pressure to launch movies. Um, you know, we, we don't, 
have, you know, things that we were privately held companies. So we don't have promises that we're making to Wall Street around this where it might often invite that trade-off between the quality of what you produce, you know, for, for the sake of driving the, the revenue. Um, and in fact, in, in many of these cases, you know, our partners in the entertainment space, uh, particularly in the theatrical side, they're the ones who are actually um, bearing a lot of the financial risk on these things. And so our our financial take on this directly in terms of licensing fees, while it's not insignificant, it's not something that is going to make or break our our company. The, the benefit to us is, does it really ultimately drive a lot of interest in building? And um, so that, that's really the lens through which we, we put uh, the theatrical releases, but everything else that we do. There's a, a quote about branded content that I've always particularly enjoyed, which is that branded content is a gift with nothing um, expected in return. And it kind of felt like to me, that's what the Lego movie was like first and foremost. It was kind of like a gift to fans of like, we're going to tell this cool story using like using Legos in a way that you hadn't really seen it before. Um, and something that can kind of get your kids psyched up to go build. And like, that's kind of, you know, as, um, as I see, you know, like my nieces and nephews and, and stuff like that anecdotally, but also just in kind of the, the broader spectrum here, the idea that you get, you can watch the movie or you can listen to everything is awesome in the car and it gets you psyched up to go actually build something when you get home is such a cool idea from, uh, you know, it's such a powerful thing for the actual, for your customers, but also like as a marketer, it's gotta be like, you know, this, uh, this Zen moment where you're like, I am, I'm really contributing to behavior that enhances your know, customer experience and happiness with our product. Yeah. It's, it's actually very interesting. I hadn't heard that quote before, but I, I really subscribe to it. Um, and I think one of the things that's, that's really, um, awesome to me about working um, for Lego and marketing is that not only is, is the brand and the product concept really cool and one that you can feel very good about, but being a privately held and, and ultimately family owned company, um, you, you can really, um, you can sense that there is a value base within our owners um, that uh, that's pretty uncompromising. And so just to, to validate what you're saying, when you look at the overall um, KPI structure for our company, um, so everything that we're bonused on, um, it is very much around creating stakeholder value on the on the assumption that if we're creating value for our consumers, for our retail partners, for our employees, for society at large, then ultimately it will come back to us. Um, and that that ultimately has been in place that mantra, um, you know, really since the turnaround that we uh, started over 15 years ago. Um, and ultimately now, you know, of, of my bonus and any Lego employee, only about 20% of our bonus is based on our own profit. Everything else is based on how well are we delivering for consumers, for employees, for business partners, those kinds of things. So there is a very clear intent here. And I think that frees us up as marketers to say, you know what, let's just simply do right by consumers and shoppers and it will ultimately come back to us, you know. And, and so uh, that's probably been one of the biggest lessons that I've had over, over the years here. Do you ever feel a little bit guilty about how many people's feet have stepped on a Lego in the middle of the night? <laughs> I do. In fact, um, 
oftentimes I, I was at an event last night and, you know, uh, somebody asked where I worked and that was the first thing that came out of their mouth. Oh, so you're the guy that I need to blame for stepping on so many bricks, et cetera. Yeah, we hear that quite a bit. So a collective apology to all of your listeners who have endured that. A household of Tadeo Legos is, is truly, the, uh, is truly the, the, the worst off version. Again, it's easy to kind of like look back and say like, wow, like everything kind of went great and um, it all worked. And, you know, you, you all have won a bunch of awards for uh, a lot of the work that you've done from marketing perspective. But I'm curious, like at the time, you know, did you feel like your marketing team was that smart? Did you feel like you were really onto something or did you feel like you were kind of making some bets that you were a little scared of? That's a really, really good question. And I have to be very honest with you and say that uh, there were there were some times, of course, where we were proud with, with the results that we were coming in. But I think there was always a, a degree of humility that we had around the fact that we're always raising this question, do we really truly understand what's driving this? And um, it, it led us to do um, a ton in the way of consumer research and trying to understand our consumers and the business dynamics. And um, I think what ultimately helped us, I genuinely believe, is that uh, we we had a decade-long period where we were growing at double-digit rates annually. And I'm convinced that we would never have had the benefit of that experience had we not had the near-death experience that preceded it. And what the near-death experience forced us to do is get really surgical in understanding what caused that decline. And so when things started to go well, um, we started to take that medicine on the other side, which is to say, look, you know, you know, things are going well, it doesn't absolve us of the responsibility of understanding why. Um, and I will be honest and say that, uh, you know, we, we haven't always been perfect on that. You know, we, I think we tripped up certainly even just a few years ago, um, you know, the, the double digit run came to a stall pretty common with, with a lot of companies that, that experience sustained growth is that, you have this bias that you feel like the, the, the near future is going to look like the present. Um, you don't anticipate a lot of change. And, you know, what's the incentive to do anything differently because what you're doing now is working. And, you know, at that time, um, you know, where we saw a ton of benefit from, you know, particularly the, some of the legacy models around broadcast television, we were not only doing a lot of advertising there, but we were also doing, you know, a lot in the way of television shows there. And so we had a lot of exposure and a lot of reliance on broadcast television. Now, all of a sudden, almost overnight, you know, more and more kids are going to YouTube and they're going to Netflix. And um, that wasn't part of our formula. And so, you know, pivoting uh, to, to adopt to that uh, new, new world um, was, uh, was quite a challenge in some respects, because I think people had gotten used to the formula and we were optimizing the formula. And um, I think, to be honest with you, we got a little bit too internally oriented. Um, so that was a really good wake-up call for us to, uh, to then say, okay, wow, more media experiences here are now happening. They're starting in search bars rather than with remote controls. What kind of impact does that have? And, you know, it, as it turns out, we found that, uh, you know, there was a sizable percentage of the population who no longer had us top of mind. Um, so we really had to pivot. And again, I think it just goes to this constant lesson that you, you if anything, should be over-investing in, you know, research and insights and trying to understand what's truly driving your business and how people are engaging with your brand or not. Yeah, I mean, one of the, it's a, it's a, it's a great insight because I think one of the things that a lot of marketers do, you know, is get comfortable with the things that they're doing and make some big bets. Those kind of 
you know, end up working and become the status quo. And they say, you know, okay, everything is working. We're optimized. We're optimizing them. They don't look for the new thing. And it, you know, it always feels like the, you know, the new thing can come out of left field. Um, I, I think a great example of this for, for Lego, and I'm, I'm curious to your relationship with these, but unboxing videos is like one of the most bizarre things ever. I mean, if you were to tell all of us as children that like, you're going to go watch, you know, other kids or your kids are going to go watch other kids build Lego sets on, you know, well, YouTube, which wouldn't exist at the time. Like you would think that we're crazy. And I think some parents do go crazy with it. <laughs> there is something very satisfying about, you know, going over to your friend's house and, you know, seeing what they built. So, you know, you kind of take those same sort of emotions and now it's just a digital experience. And now you have this elephant in the room that it's like, hey, we can steer into this or we can try to avoid it or we can, you know, try to figure it out. What do we do here? I'm curious to, you know, your strategy in general around that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, <laughs> unboxing is, is uh, you know, I, I totally share your perspective on that. It, it seems a little bit odd for, for adults to, 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 to get into that, but it's very clear the psychology with kids, um, it, it works quite a bit. And so that's something that, of course, we, we, we've adopted to. We do the same thing as adults. Like we want, like there's shows where guys just drive cars around or, you know, gals, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, test swords or what, whatever the thing is like adults do this too. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I will say that, uh, to your point, you know, if you had asked me 15 years ago, you know, if you'd explain the whole unboxing concept and you'd asked me to invest in a company that would do that, I would have told you you were crazy. Um, but that's, it's a good example of how you, you, you really need to make sure that you're nimble and focused on, you know, what, what are some of the new things that are catching on and not get too enamored with your formula. And I think that's, that's ultimately where um, I've seen the biggest shift. E even before I joined Lego, the, you know, I, I started at General Mills and, you know, what I was struck by when I joined there, um, and it made perfect sense at the time, but it was a formula. You know, they, they, they're one of the premier CPG companies, and they, they certainly were at the time, and, you know, they, they had it down, you know, and so you were there to sort of learn how to apply the formula, how to optimize the formula. What I'm learning in this day and age is there is no formula anymore, or if there is, it has to get reinvented pretty much every year. And um, so that was the, the good wake up call, I think, for us, which is that uh, whether or not it's unboxing videos or all of a sudden YouTube comes out of nowhere or uh, not quite out of nowhere, but, you know, you, you cannot get too enamored with your, your formula and your processes. You really need to stay very close to, closely tuned into how people are evolving um, because it is changing more rapidly now than ever. You recently gave a talk, and you've written about this in the past, about this idea of a creativity crisis. What is this, uh, what is this idea? So it's not my idea. I'll, I'll preface by saying that. It actually um, was uh, first introduced in 2010 with a cover story in Newsweek um, called Literally the Creativity Crisis. And it was basically reporting on some academic research that had been done um, with some fairly compelling uh, research that uh, showed that creative aptitude among children in the U.S. Um, was starting to decline. Um, as of roughly about 1990, we started to see a relatively steady decline in, in the creative aptitude scores. Um, now, this, this method has been in place since about 1950-ish, 
And so it was relatively stable for about a 30-year period, and then it started to really decline right around 1990. So as of 2010, um, this was reported in, in Newsweek, and there were a few different um, root causes that were cited for it. Um, one was the the advent of, of video games. Um, you know, things uh, experiences were a bit more passive and more focused on achievement and, and skill mastery rather than creativity. Um, another was uh, screen time and the advent of cable television and, and the degree to which kids were watching more and more television, again, passively consuming entertainment. And then the third thing that was cited was the increased uh, obsession within the education system around standardized testing, which ultimately crowded out, you know, subjects and time against subjects that were not tested, like art and music and drama and things like that. So that was sort of, in a nutshell, what was reported in 2010. And, you know, I, I was kind of looking at this thinking, okay, is it really a crisis or is this some sensationalized thing? But in reality, according to the numbers, just take one of the, the different components of this test that they had measured, uh, which is called elaboration. And so that's the ability to take an idea and build upon it in a new and interesting way. 85% of the kids in 2008 scored below the median in 1990. So um, it, it was not an overstatement to call this a crisis. It's been a really big decline. So I remember seeing this article when it came out in 2010, and um, I, I just thought, wow, whatever happened to that? You know, this, this is like 2018 or so that I was asked to look into this. And I thought, man, you know, I haven't heard anything about it. And, you know, the unfortunate reality is, is I've um, sort of checked in with some of the people who had done the research on, on the, that sparked the Newsweek article, and uh, they had indicated that, in fact, uh, not only does the decline continue, but it does so at, at an accelerating rate, um, enhanced now by the fact that kids and the way that they spend their days is actually contributing to this even worse, where, you know, there, there seems to be more of a focus on resume building at younger and younger ages. And so there's just been a, a reduction in the amount of free time that kids have, you know, and much of their activities are now supervised heavily by adults, whether it's, you know, coaches or teachers or parents or things like that. So there's just less free time for kids to, to play and be creative. And so, yeah, it's, it's a fairly bleak picture. Um, so yeah, that, that's basically it in a nutshell. Well, and I think, um, I think it's really interesting for marketers, like as you said at the top, that it's this role where you can kind of blend right brain and left brain or um, you now have the opportunity to blend creativity with analytics in a way more powerful than ever. You truly are extremely close to the customer now in a way that you know, kind of as you mentioned earlier, you know, when you're buying, you know, when you're mass buying TV spots and, and that's kind of the, the, the be all and end all of, of what marketing is for, for certain companies, there's a little bit of, uh, of, you know, potentially it's less dynamic, but now you're talking about the, the channels in which CMOs need to be looking at looking at innovation, looking at these things is like extremely complex. So to to live in a world where you know you're constantly looking at constraints and look, instead of looking at creating is just extremely detrimental um, for things like this. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what's interesting too is I've often reflected on the nature of the talent that we hire as marketers, and you know is is that sort of moving with the times? In other words. You know, when I first got into marketing, a, a lot of people had my profile. It was, you know, highly analytical MBAs, and that was probably very well suited to, 
you know, executing according to formulas and being, you know, more focused on, you know, optimization of, of a P&L and process orientation and things like that. Um, fast forward to today, and while those skills, of course, have, you know, still relevance, um, there's a much higher premium being placed on people who are comfortable with ambiguity, people who can, um, you know, take risks around and innovate around new ways of doing things. And um, so, so in many respects, I, f- I feel like, you know, the, the changing times has required very much either a changing in, in talent and recruiting practices or a significant rewiring of the talent that, that, that you have to make sure that they are comfortable taking risks and comfortable with ambiguity and, and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, so it's not only, I think, a challenge um, from an intellectual and a technical perspective, it's also a challenge from a leadership perspective on how do you actually manage talent? Because you're right, this, this notion of, you know, the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain, um, those need to be balanced. And in fact, if anything, the creative side of the brain now probably needs to get exercised uh, even more so just given the dynamics of the world in which we operate. And I think that's the one thing that uh, we believe as it relates to Lego um, it, we call it systematic creativity is the thing that we, we believe that we bring in and something that we can maybe bring a little bit more unique to the world of creativity is this notion that it's creativity within a construct. You know, it's not complete freeform creativity because you have shapes of elements and colors and things like that. Um, it's not unlike music, which is, you know, of course there are, there's freedom within frames and likewise within Lego, um, there's something systematic to the creativity that you're doing. And, you know, uh, this is why it's a, such a passionate point to me, this whole notion around the creativity crisis, because I don't think that marketing is, is any different from a lot of other professions out there. And, and uh, you know, the degree to which kids um, and even young adults and, and all adults need to develop this notion of systematic creativity um, just for their own professional enrichment and, and almost survival is just really, really important. And what's been just shocking to me is this whole notion around the creativity crisis has just not gotten a whole lot of play um, in, in the popular press. Well, I think also you have the idea of like being an adult and like what you're allowed to do in terms of play, right? It's like, you know, when, um, when my nephew uh, got the, the Lego uh, Empire State Building and brought it to, you know, Thanksgiving and, you know, him and, uh, and his uncle went upstairs and <laughs> built, built this thing for three hours. Um, you know, as the adult, you're sitting there, you know, building, um, building Legos, like, oh, well, I'm playing with my, my nephew, right? Why is it that Zach, we keep finding Zachary downstairs playing with, you know, playing with other kids and doing stuff, but the adults are still, you know, building the Legos. Um, but I think that, you know, it's part of that of like having those creative outlets, um, that, I think people struggle with like finding those things. Like it's hard. It's, you know, you're not going to just sit there. Like most people are not just going to sit there with a, you know, blank word doc and, uh, or a Google doc and sit there and like, Hey, I'm going to write today or I'm going to do whatever. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it's pretty necessary. Yeah. You know, it's actually really interesting that you mentioned this because, um, there's been a recent trend here around, uh, adults and coloring books recently. And, um, and now we're even seeing within our business, um, a rather significant uptick in the number of adults who are buying Lego products for themselves because they're actually using Lego building as a form of stress relief for almost mindfulness. And um, part of this, of course, is driven by also the fact that, 
you know, millennials, I think, at least from what I've heard, tend to be a little bit more nostalgic for their childhoods. And, you know, there's, there's a bit of a, a partiality toward brands that they grew up with. And so um, we seem to be fortunate to be in, in a bit of this sweet spot where people are looking for ways of, of unplugging, de-stressing, um, digital detoxing. Um, and they're also, you know, looking for ways to tap into nostalgia. And so that's, uh, that's, it's definitely a market opportunity that now we're, we're starting to, to tap into. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have there, believe it or not, is um, overcoming the stigma among some people that Lego is a toy and they almost feel like they need permission to, to play with it. So almost like you did with your nephew where it was cool for you to do it because, you know, you're playing with your nephew. Um, but uh, I think a lot of other people who would like to play with Lego just because they're adults often find that they need the permission to do that and that it's not quite as socially acceptable as I'd like it to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, I did a I did a puzzle over the uh, over the break and I hadn't done a puzzle and I have no idea how long and uh, it really was some true mindfulness, right? Cuz you're kind of it's like kind of you're half in it, but you're also kind of still talking and catching up with, you know, your relatives or whatever it is. It's sort of that like you know, we're all hanging out, but we also are kind of doing something and we're not staring at a screen, which is nice. Um, and I think, you know, I think people are just going to naturally gravitate towards those sort of things in the future. And it's a great place to be. Like being closer to play, I think, is uh, is super important, um, especially, you know, doing things in the real world. If you were to be, you know, sitting around with a group of marketers or maybe you already do this, um, talking about, you know, you know, making movies and all that sort of stuff um, as as a method in your in your marketing arsenal. Um, what would be your pros and cons of like if they're like, "Hey, I want to make a movie and I want to get it on the big screen. Uh, I think this could be an awesome fit for our brand. It fits what our brand values, and we want to do X, Y, Z, and we want to work with." you know, premier director and great writers and we don't have this stuff in house and we want to partner with somebody, blah, 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 blah. Um, what would you say to them in terms of like, well, these are the pros and these are the cons? Yeah, uh, very good question. I think that the pros, of course, if you hit it right, um, is that it can be um, extraordinary exposure and it can be a, um, you know, a, a way that um, invites people willingly into your brand. It's not like, uh, in fact, they're paying to, to experience it. And so it's not like you're cramming marketing down their throats. It's, uh, they're, they're super receptive to, to your brand and to, to an experience there. So in terms of both the reach and the, the overall appeal, it, you know, if you, again, if you strike it right, um, it, it's hard to really top theatricals um, you know, as, a, as a marketing vehicle. However, I do think that there are a couple of things to, to, to be wary of. Um, number one is that you are far from guaranteed success. And, um, you know, uh, we, we have not had a 100% hit rate on our films by any means. And so I think, uh, you know, we, we, we have to be fairly humble to, to, to that fact as well, that it's, it's definitely not a guarantee by any means. Number one, number two, um, there's a fair amount of financial risk in in doing this, and so um, somebody needs to bear that, whether or not that's the brand or or you know production and distribution companies uh, or a combination thereof. Um, it's it's a fairly big bet, and um, you know the world of, of theatricals um, is is getting quite interesting now. You know, considering the fact that. You know, when you look at, for example, Disney and and the phenomenal year that they've had. Um, you know they they are dominating the you know the the, the tops of the of, of of the charts and 
you know, so, so you have that going on, which is very competitive to, to break through. And then you also have, you know, Netflix coming on and how, how is the viewing pattern shifting between Netflix and theatricals? That's somewhat complicated to, to deal with and to imagine where, where the world is headed. So it is definitely not, um, not easy money by any means. Um, what, what I would say though, is for, for us anyway, that I think, uh, work that that could be uh, lessons for for anybody else is number one just really really making sure that the story is super compelling um that is um of paramount importance um because without that you know it, it's nothing nothing matters um and i think the other part of this too is that invariably there are multiple stakeholders who are engaged in pulling something like this off whether or not it's the brand or you know the the studio the distribution partners and it's really important to to make sure that when it comes to theatricals, um, for the most part, the it's got to work for everybody. And uh, you know, we had a, a, a film with our Ninjago property back a few years ago. Now, Ninjago is a really popular property with boys, but when it comes to theatricals, they they like what they call you know these four quadrant films across age and gender really broad appeal. So the, the box office for Ninjago was pretty muted because, I mean, it drew a ton of, you know, hardcore boy fans, but it really didn't do very much for, uh, for, for girls and for adults. And so, um, and that was the big difference between that and the Lego movie. So going into that, that's a really good learning for us that, you know, we've got to make sure that we're delivering for our partners too, and uh, making sure that there's a really strong breadth of appeal is, is pretty vital as well. Do you ever feel like sucked into the someone else's business model? Like Steve Blank talks about this, um, you know, famous serial entrepreneur about like, you know, there's a point when as an entrepreneur, you realize that your investor's business model is your business model sort of a thing. I kind of feels like this whenever you have organizations that partner with, um, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's Hollywood or whether it's, other, you know, similar sort of, uh, you know, co-branded ventures or things like that, that you're kind of like, like, wait a second, let's take a step back here. If we ran all of these campaigns at break even for us, you know, that would still be a massive win because of the, you know, those are still marketing dollars well spent, you know, we, you know, sort of a thing. Whereas that's not necessarily a win for, you know, your partners as much. So there's kind of like this, this thing where, you know, I just kind of look at this stuff as a marketer where you're like, like any marketing campaign that could break even is such a slam dunk win for marketers that it's like, you know, Hey, or, or whatever your kind of like a mental model or your little, you know, Hey, we just had it, you know, whatever two X lift or whatever thing is that, that you use. I just kind of, it seems like there could be a very kind of difficult uh, road to hoe there potentially. So, sometimes, but I think, you know, one of the things um, that, that we've adopted is this mindset uh, that when it comes to partnerships, it, it really needs to be about mutual value creation. And uh, be, because, you know, that, that to us is anyway, the, the, the only way of generating sustainability to a partnership. And, and when we go into a lot of these partner deals, whether or not it's licensing deals with the likes of Disney or Universal or others, or, you know, theatrical deals like what we've done in the past, they're multi-year deals and we want it to be sustainable. And the only way to do that is to make sure that both parties are winning. And so there will invariably be compromise in some ways because for, for us, it cannot be about simply us maximizing our value extraction from this. It, there, there has to be an, an equal win. 
And um, so there have been some times in which we, you know, while it's, I wouldn't say that we're held hostage to it because if, if you're in a mutually value creating partnership, there will be some give and take and some compromises, but no one should ever feel like they're being held hostage. Then it's not a, a real partnership. Um, but I think there will be some give and take. I mean, a really good example is that, uh, you know, we've had a great partnership with, with Warner Brothers in, in distributing our films. Um, we have had an internal policy um, that we, we don't do co-promotions with food companies, um, largely because we, you know, we don't want to necessarily be um, contributing to a lot of the childhood obesity debate and that kind of thing. And so we, we had a, an internal policy that we would not be doing any food co-promotions. And so for the better part of the last 15 years or so, we haven't done Happy Meal promotions or things like that. Well, in the theatrical world, when you're launching a kid's movie, to not have a, a, a QSR promotion is like, that's kind of deadly. And so we, we ultimately made a compromise there with, uh, with, with our colleagues at Warner Brothers, just recognizing that this has to be a, a mutual a mutually value creating partnership. But if it ever gets to the point where we feel like we're being being held hostage or we're holding somebody else hostage, then we have to say, look, this is not progressing as a partnership and we, we need to reset. Yeah, that's that's such a great point. And there is just so much of like how this has kind of always been done um, for a lot of these types of uh, of things. And I'm sure that, you know, looking at, you know, new digital digital properties, I'm sure that your team is innovating in tons of ways in terms of how you look at marketing and marketing spend and, um, you know, and initiatives and things like that. I'm curious, um, you know, before we get into uh, some lightning round questions real quick and, and get out of here, I'm curious, like, what does it look like as you're building relationships with these partners? Like, how do you go about that? And then how do you take, you know, drive innovation with your team internally so that you can bring some, you know, new fresh ideas from the ground, like to those partnerships? Yeah, I think you know one of the things that we're we're really looking at now in terms of the the, the media tech and entertainment spaces is that you know the, these partnerships that we have are getting increasingly more complicated because the the worlds in which these folks live are starting to to really blend together and, and the boundaries across those industries are are really starting to, to 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 blur quite a bit and so I think this notion that we are much more about stakeholder value creation and uh, considering that when we do enter into a partnership it's got to be mutually value creating and so. Um, you know, when, when it comes to, for example, promotions uh, or partnerships with, uh, you know, digital media partners, we, we really try to do a lot here to, to make sure that it isn't a transactional relationship uh, where, of course, you know, we can buy advertising from anybody or we can, you know, conduct a promotional partnership with anybody. But that, that to us would be considered more, more transactional. I think where it becomes really interesting is when when they're more strategic in the sense that they're more multi-layered and they are much more mutually value creating. Um, and so we, we might go to some of the folks in Silicon Valley and, you know, look at ways of not only, you know, buying advertising, but then are there maybe branded programs that we might be able to do brand marketing programs or joint innovation initiatives or things like that, that, that can just add more value to a partnership. Um, than, than what they might get out of a, again, a simple um, transactional advertising relationship. Um, and, and this is where we try to take a look at it through their lens to say, what, what's the value that we can actually provide to a lot of these partners beyond just simply cutting them a check for advertising? And um, whether or not that's content or capabilities or you know distribution in some ways or exposure through all of our own platforms, et cetera, you know, th these are all the kinds of things that we look at um, and we try to press our teams with really trying to think about how multidimensional can we be in, in creating really good value for a partner to make us a really attractive 
partner. But by the same token, we also then have to make sure that, you know, we are, we're getting what we need um, out of the partnership as well. And, um, and this is where, you know, back to the example of Silicon Valley, you know, there are definitely some issues uh, as it relates to brand and child safety that we're dealing with right now, where, you know, it's not all about how do we accommodate the partners. It's also drawing the line on some really clear areas where we have brand values that, we're just not willing to compromise on. And I think th- they respect that a lot more when they recognize that we're being very transparent around trying to, to create win-win solutions. Um, but it, it is striking this right balance here of trying to do right by the partner, but also being really firm on, on what you need to get out of it as well. Let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like marketing on the world's number one CRM that is Salesforce. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce and you can discover world's number one CRM that's Salesforce and marketing on it is the best. We love Salesforce. You will too. Check them out. Um, Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Um, You can go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more. Marketing any size organization. Check them out. Lightning round questions. Michael, are you ready? Yep. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? Ooh, actually, I just um, tested our new Lego building instructions app the other day. It's awesome. What is your favorite thing to cook or eat? Man, I'm a big pasta guy, I would say. What about a marketing campaign that you saw that you were jealous of? I I would say that um, the, and it's probably an overused example, but the Colin Kaepernick ad uh, from Nike was, um, it it was an example of really great consumer insight coupled with very bold uh, strategic thinking. And I I really admire Nike for what they did there. What about your favorite vacation spot? Ireland. Ooh, where in Ireland? Oh yeah, you're a golfer, right? I, I am indeed. I, you know, probably an imposter there, but uh, <laughs> I, I do enjoy it. And uh, I, I went on a trip uh, a couple of years ago to Southwest Ireland and it was just spectacular. I could highly, highly recommend it. Wonderful country. What is your best advice for a first time CMO? I would say use consumers and shoppers as your North Star. Everything else is noise. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? What are some of my favorite books? I do enjoy reading and uh, I love talking about the stuff that I read, um, but I don't get asked about it very much. So yeah. What, how about a book book recommendation or two? So uh, one of the more fascinating books that I've read recently is a, a book called Range. Uh, came out last year and it's all about uh, how generalists need to be more celebrated um, in, in today's world, um, which tends to put much more of a premium on specialists. And so it's absolutely fascinating. Um, there's another one that I just finished called The Meritocracy Trap, which is uh, written by a professor from Yale Law School, all about the world of income inequality that does, it, I think, a phenomenal job at really getting to the root causes of, uh, of a really pressing issue. Um, but it's a great example of, uh, politics aside, I think it's a great example of using data and, and logic and problem solving to, to come to a, a really good understanding of something. Michael, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, any final thoughts, anything to plug every, any, any, any favorite, uh, or, you know, Lego sets that people should go out and buy, uh, recently? Well, uh, you know, we've, we've got some pretty cool stuff, uh, coming up here. Um, yeah, I, I can't, say too much about it, but uh, all I will say is uh, coming up in the back half of this year, there's there's some really, really fun stuff coming out. Uh, we also have a new launch coming in um, March around uh, the arts and crafts space that I think is going to be super interesting. And then maybe the, the one thing to, to just plug right now, shamelessly, is um, February 5th, uh, we have a show coming out on Fox called Lego Masters, which is like a reality-based TV program 
uh, people competing to be the next Lego master. So um, that should be really, really fun. I love it. And finally, I really appreciate the chance to come on. So thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Uh, I uh, I love all of the marketing that you all do. And, and uh, obviously, we all love uh, Lego Lego. So um, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, The messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.